Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 30. Psalm 30, hear now the word of the Lord. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if anybody was a little puzzled by the prefix there. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Because when you then hear what the song is all about, you're like, wait, we're singing this at the dedication of the temple, what's the point? Now, there are, uh, there are some who have suggested that, that this was actually sort of a later edition. And so there was a sort of, ah, somebody wrote this song about their own, uh, uh, David wrote this song about his own sort of situation, and then later somebody added this title. Well, that means that the somebody else was the really stupid one because this has nothing to do with what... Or maybe what we're given is exactly what God wants us to see. Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious there. God wants us to see something here. Namely, that the healing of David and the dedication of the temple are not two different things. The healing of David and the dedication of the temple are the same thing. Because this is what the whole... Actually, thank you, Rex. You set this up beautifully. Because, I mean, that's... The healing of David and the dedication of the temple is all about how can humanity be restored to God's presence. Well, it's going to be, as we've been seeing through the Psalms, it's going to be through the Lord's anointed... And David himself understood in book one, I am the Lord's anointed, and yet there is a Lord's anointed beyond me. There is a Messiah beyond me. In one sense, you can see how in this book one of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, we've been seeing how three themes keep getting woven back together. The law, the king, and the temple. Torah, Messiah, sanctuary. Psalms 1 and 2 stand at the beginning of this altar. Psalm 1 opens, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
but who meditates on God's law day and night. Psalm 2 focuses on the Lord's anointed, the Son of God, who reigns in Zion, God's holy hill. And these themes continue throughout Book 1. There are the three creation psalms that we've seen already. There's Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, in all the earth, how excellent your name. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Well, well, all three psalms have all three realms of creation, the heavens, the earth, and the seas. Each one focuses on a different one. Psalm 8 focuses on the earth. Well, Psalm 8 also focuses on the Son of Man. Psalm 19 focuses on the heavens and also on God's perfect law. Psalm 29 focuses on the waters and also in God's temple all cry glory. In other words, these three themes of of the law, the king, and the temple are woven together in the whole way the Psalms talk about creation because what happened at the creation? In the creation, God gave Adam and Eve a place to meet with him, the Garden of Eden. Adam is the son of God. He is the prophet, priest, and king. The garden is the sanctuary, the dwelling place where God meets with man. And God gives to Adam and Eve a law, a command, a way of life that showed them how to dwell with him forever. Of course, we got a problem, which comes up already in Genesis 3. They did not listen to the law of God. They, what did they do? What was that first line in the, in the first psalm? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And now you start to see that the Psalms are talking about how do we deal with the problem that Adam and Eve listened to the counsel of the wicked. They did not listen to God's voice. They did not meditate on his law. And as we've sung through book one of the Psalms, we've been hearing this question come back in different forms. Psalm 8 asked, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 15 asked, who shall dwell with God? Psalm 24, push that a step further. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and enter into God's holy place? You might have thought, ah, the high priest once a year. No, that's not the answer. Not the answer Psalm 24 gave. The Lord's anointed. Indeed, Psalm 24 pointed out, the Lord's anointed, yeah, but who is this king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh himself, he is the king of glory. Wait, so somebody's going to ascend the hill of the Lord... Who is the Lord? Yes, it is in the incarnation where our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is God come in the flesh that he will bring a people to himself. And last time in Psalm 29, we heard David's call to the heavenly beings, the sons of the gods, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And now in Psalm 30, David does precisely what he called them to do. And he writes a song for the dedication of the temple that is designed to show how the healing of the house of David, the healing of David, remember David's going to be dead by the time this house is dedicated. So the healing of the house of David is going to bring about the restoration of all things. If Psalm 30 is a song of dedication at the temple, then it has a lot to do with Hebrews chapter 9, because Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of how the dedication of the temple is connected to what Jesus has done. So let's 
Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as far as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. If you think of all the psalms of refuge that we've seen in book one of the Psalter, 
You, O Lord, are a shield about me, Psalm 3. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety, Psalm 4. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice, Psalm 5. If I just gave you one line from each Psalm of Refuge, we'd be here for a while. Because refuge is one of the major themes in Book 1. And now, as we reach Psalm 30, perhaps it's becoming clearer. Maybe at first it sort of seemed like, oh yeah, God is my refuge. Okay, that, that, But now, all of these songs pointing more and more clearly to how Jesus is our refuge. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, waiting upon the Lord seeking our refuge in Him. He is our refuge. And, and again, we need to see the, the first person singular in these psalms as this is the voice of David. And Israel is called to sing these songs in and with David just like we sing them in and with Christ. And so in verses 1 to 3, David gives praise to God for hearing his cry for help. I will extol you, O Lord. For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. If you think about what David's doing here, if this is a song for the dedication of the temple, this is why you see this back and forth in the tone of the psalm. Because you have this opening and closing of Psalm 30 that is rejoicing with great joy, and yet there's all this lament in the middle. Why? Because God has heard me. And even, you know, in verses 1 to 3, you already get to Sheol. You have brought me up. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. This is to be sung at the, at the, the dedication of the temple, when David's already dead. David sees the dedication of the temple as, in a sense, his resurrection. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have not left me in the pit. Now, fine. Uh, it's going to take another thousand years <laughs> for Jesus to be raised from the dead and the dedication of the temple to come to its full and fruition. But a song for the dedication of the temple. I'm already there, David says. He's not dead yet. And he's already seeing his resurrection. That's for us. At least, as far as I can tell, none of you are dead yet. And yet, you see, I mean, because I'm just going to go all the way there right now. We'll come back here later, but. <laughs> Who are you? Temples of the Holy Spirit, right? If the Holy Spirit is in you, you are the temple of God. Song for the dedication of the temple. This is about you. This is about, okay, let's be clear here. Clear here. You plural. We, the body of Christ, we, the people of God, a holy dwelling place for God. A song for the dedication of the temple. Why does David make this first person singular about himself for the dedication of the temple? Because he understands. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who is going to make all of this happen. And then who are we in Jesus? We are built together into a holy dwelling place for God. So when David cries out, I extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. David's singing that from the grave. 
Because about the dedication of the temple, he's already dead. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from the, among those who go down to the pit. And as we've seen over and over, okay, fine, you got David's situation, but why does David say it this way? He doesn't go into all the detail I just gave you. Why not? Because he wants you to sing it too. This is not just a song for David to sing and everybody else gets to say, wow, David, you get it. No, we get to sing it with him. And so you take your experience because you all have experienced, maybe not as as we saw in Psalm 28, going down to the pit doesn't have to mean actual death. Depression, disease, despair, a whole lot of situations in life qualify as the pit. And... God wants us to see this connection between David's, David's situation and the dedication of the temple because the house of God, the temple, is very much the, what we have become. Uh, actually, temple language and body language get connected all through the scriptures. Uh, in the evening service, after we finish Philippians, we'll be going into Samuel Kings. And 1 Kings uses the, the same sort of language in talking about the construction of the temple, that Genesis uses with respect to the creation, or shall we say, construction of Eve, that it's, it's, it's architectural vocabulary that God uses to describe the creation of Eve. And that same architectural language gets used in the construction of the temple. Because Eve, is per, Eve and the temple are portrayed, there's a, there's a parallel here. It's part of the reason why the scriptures regularly connect the idea of the church as the temple, the church as the bride of Christ, the mother of believers, because this sort of language is all through the scriptures. And those who went before us saw this more clearly than we did. And in the 5th century, Theodoret said that the language of the dedication of the house in Psalm 30 refers to the restoration of human nature that Christ the Lord accomplished by accepting death on our behalf, destroying death, and giving us hope of resurrection. Theodoret's like, this is obvious, I mean, which it should be to us once we see it. Because David speaks of his own healing in a song written for the dedication of the temple because David saw that the purpose of the temple was resurrection. The purpose of the temple was life to the dead. After all, John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And your body is a temple of the living God. In the Old Testament, the temple was made of stone, but God's purpose was never to live in a house of stone. That wasn't what he was after. His purpose was to dwell in humanity. And the problem was that because of sin, humanity was an unfit place for divine residence. And so God started by showing us all these pictures throughout the Old Testament. And then he sent his own son to take our flesh and blood upon himself. Last time we heard David call the the heavenly beings to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now in verse 4, he calls the saints, the holy ones, to sing praises to the Lord. Notice, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And part of what David's doing is, is, is insisting that those who are called by God's name, those who are holy in Christ, are called to sing praise to the Lord. David is going to be the one who, actually, at the dedication of the temple, one of, one of the things David does as he's, as he's helping Solomon uh, before David dies, 
he, he creates these, these new uh, sort of Levitical choirs. There had never been singing in the worship of God before. And David organizes singers so that at the dedication of the temple, there will be song. Now, that's a theme that deserves treatment of its own, in its own right. And again, when we, we'll get a chance to talk about that more. But, but David calls the saints, the holy, the holy people, to give thanks to God's holy name and sing praises to the Lord in his worship. And we give thanks to God. Why? Because his anger is but for a moment, verse 5. And his favor, his grace, is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Hebrews will tell us that our experience of God's anger is a part of his discipline for us. It's important to remember, as the psalmist says, you know, his anger is but for a moment. But why is God angry? God is always angry because he loves. Anger is not, you might say, this may sound like a strange way of putting it, but anger is not a permanent attribute of God. If you think about it, in the new creation, there'll be nothing for God to be angry about. So I think sometimes we think of the anger of God, the wrath of God, it's like, so will he be angry when... But you see... It's actually, there's a way in which anger is an expression of love. Now, our, our problem is that our loves are so twisted and distorted that we get angry about the wrong things, and we don't get angry about the right things. But God's anger is always in the, in the service of his love. It's because he loves that he says, this is wrong, this cannot keep happening in my world. And so his anger is, that's why that's what David says, his anger is but for a moment. His favor, His grace, is for a lifetime. God does not want you to remain in your sin and misery. And so yes, He will use sorrow and affliction in your life in order to correct your misguided loves. Think about how this gets pictured for us in the story of of Rahab. God had commanded the, the, the Israelites to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And the idea here is that this is... God's final judgment being poured out on the Canaanites. The end days, the last days have come upon the Canaanites as a picture of what all sin deserves. It's sort of, you might say, it's it's sort of an intrusion of the, the, the eschatological judgment into history in order for God to say, let me show you what sin deserves. It was the same thing God had done with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now he does it with the Canaanites. And so God's curse is upon the Canaanites. The, the curse of utter destruction. They were told to kill every man, woman, and child as they came as the angel of death in bringing judgment against Canaan. Remember, his anger is but for a moment, his grace for a lifetime. The Israelite spies meet Rahab, and she believes God. She believed and put her faith into practice and protected the spies who came to Jericho, and so God had mercy on her and her household. So, but so wait, but, but God's curse was upon her and her family. How come she was allowed to live? His anger is but for a moment. His grace for a lifetime. She believed God. And not only was she spared, she winds up in the genealogy of Jesus. Wait a second. A people that's cursed to utter destruction. 
winds up in the genealogy of Jesus. You, You see this over and over again? Because, for instance, you'll see this again, actually, you see this previously with the story of, 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 actually, it comes out in Ruth, but in the Moabites. Because Lot and his daughters are the only survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's daughters wind up, one of them has Moab. So, who are the Moabites? The last survivors of Sodom. And who is Ruth, the Moabitess? A last survivor of Sodom. A, a, a city under God's curse. She winds up marrying Rahab's son. <laughs> if you do the genealogy, you're like, wait a second, Boaz was Rahab's son. And you say, wow, God's doing this again, bringing in a cursed people into the line of Jesus. He's not done yet. There's a curse on Ahab. Ahab is told, your entire line will be wiped out. And they were, except one. The boy King Joash. He's the grandson, great-grandson of Ahab. What happens when God's curse and his blessing meet? What happens when God's anger and his... Because it's, it's not like his anger is opposed to his love. It's not like his curse is opposed to his blessing. His anger is but for a moment. His blessing, his, cur- his, his, his grace is for a lifetime. Now... Sometimes it's sometimes easy to say, yeah, pastor, but in all those stories, you, it's, you're talking centuries before they realize what, what all the purpose of this was. I'm in the middle of my story. By the way, this, this is why in the middle of somebody's pain and misery, that's not the time to say, all things work together for good. That's not what they, want to, that's what, that's not what they need to hear right that moment. In the middle of the night... In the darkness, in the gloom, we weep with those who weep. But as Augustine put it, we weep only until that morning of resurrection gladness, looking to the joy that blossomed in advance in the early morning resurrection of the Lord. Because, indeed, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And that's where, you see, do you realize how you get there? You have to sit with them through the night. Are you any good at making the sun come up? Anybody here? Just to flick the fingers, you can make the sun come up? Good. Okay, no. okay, that means you've got to sit with them through the night until the morning comes. Morning will come. But you've got to be there. Because if you're like, ah, this is too difficult a situation, I'm walking away now. Well, then you're not going to be there when morning comes. But joy comes with the morning. And that's why we sit weeping in the midst of the night. Because we weep with those who weep. Because we know that God will continue the work that he has begun in us. Now, in verse 6, David starts reflecting on his former situation. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You always got to be careful how you say that. It's not always a bad thing to say. Psalm 62, psalmist will say that God only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. Okay, that's the right way to say it. 
But also in Psalm 10, the wicked said, I shall not be moved. God won't notice my evil deeds. And then you've got problems. Here in Psalm 30, David gives us a clue as to his spiritual condition. I said in my prosperity, my security, my quiet and prosperous condition. You've heard it said, pride goes before a fall. If, if you happen to be living in a moment of, of, of tranquility, be careful. It is possible that you may have years, even decades of prosperity. But when you think, I shall never be moved, that doesn't end well. Verse 7 reminds us why we have prosperity. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Here in verse 7, the favor of the Lord makes my mountain stand strong. By verse 9, we'll be back in the pit again. So you might call this section from the mountain to the pit. If the pit describes a life that is on the brink of death, then the mountain describes a life that is as close to heaven as you can get. Remember Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The dedication of the temple will be the day when the glory of the Lord will be poured out upon Mount Zion. The Spirit of God will come to dwell with God's people at the dedication of the temple. And so we should see that all the good things of life come from the Lord's hand. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. We're dedicating the temple today because God made Zion stand. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. But also disaster and ruin come from the Lord. You hid your face. I was dismayed. When God's face shines upon us, then life is good. When God hides his face then we are dismayed. Now, sometimes the psalmists will, will wonder why. Why is this happening to me? Here, David has a different way of thinking. In verses 8 through 10, his plea is that God will not benefit from his death. That may sound curious, but listen carefully to how he says it. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. My plea with God is that he will lose out if I die. Really? If I return to dust, what benefit does God get? The reason why God should rescue me from the pit is for his own sake. You may be a little shocked to hear this. Who am I that I get to lecture God on what is in his own self-interest? Okay, who is the singer of the psalm? David. What had God promised David? That I will raise, one of your sons will sit on my throne forever. If David's line ends, what happens to God's promises? Now you might, uh, he gets to sing it, I don't. I've got good news for you. The son of David has joined you to himself. He has given you his spirit. He has made you one with the eternal Son of God, that his life might be yours, that you might be his, and so therefore you get to say it too. What good is it 
What do you get, God, if I perish? If, if I'm destroyed, where, what happens to your promises? I mean, this is what we heard in Hebrews 9. Christ has purified the heavenly temple with his own blood. The Old Testament sanctuary got purified with animal blood. But the heavenly things, the heavenly holy of holies, was purified with a better sacrifice. And by a single offering, Hebrews 10 says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love how Ambrose Ambrose said this back in the 4th century. Can Christ then condemn you when he redeemed you from death and offered himself on your behalf? And when he knows that your life is what was gained from his death? Will he not say, what profit there is there in my blood if I condemn the one whom I myself have saved? Jesus looks at you and says, you're mine. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And notice, Ambrose understands, Jesus is the one singing Psalm 30. What was the point of Jesus going down to death if he does not save to the uttermost those who trust in him. Jesus says, if I am returned to dust, God said to Adam, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. If Jesus returns to dust, if the son of David returns to dust, then all of God's promises have failed. Now, I always wonder, and I never get the answer, How much did David personally understand about all this? But David understood that if God's anointed king returns to dust, then all of God's promises fail. Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? It's why David will say in the next psalm, Into your hand I commit my spirit. A phrase that Jesus will take on his own lips on the cross. It's the same sort of statement we have here in verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Remember, the word helper never means assistant. It's not somebody who does something that I don't feel like doing. The helper is one who does for me what I could not possibly do for myself. O Lord, I am helpless. I cannot save myself. I need you to save me, to deliver me, to heal me. And that's where David ends. This is what God has done. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. As David had danced into Jerusalem before the Ark of the Covenant when the Ark came in, he he brings back that image of him dancing in order that Israel might dance at the dedication of the temple in remembering that this is the picture of David's own resurrection. It's the picture of our resurrection as we are brought into union with Jesus. When God brings healing, when he does good for his people, then we should rejoice. Basil the Great in Cappadocia said, the joy of God is not found in just any soul. But If someone has mourned much and deeply his own sin with loud lamentation and continual weepings as if he were bewailing his own death, the mourning of such a one is turned into joy. God brings us through great affliction in order to reveal to us a greater joy. Paul says, I do not consider the sufferings of this present life a thing to be compared with the surpassing weight of glory. Because these light Momentary afflictions 
are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Not just, oh, we endure these sufferings and then someday we get... This is the means. This is the way. This is the path. The only path to glory. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. God's anger is only for a moment. But His grace is for a lifetime. His grace endures forever. And so we sing praise. David was the one who introduced singing and music into the regular worship of God. And at the dedication of the temple, they sang David's songs. Even as David had taught Israel to sing praise to the Lord, even so our Lord Jesus teaches us to sing. You don't have to be a great singer. But if you've been joined to Jesus, then do not be silent, but sing praise to Him. Athanasius summarized it well when he said, In dedicating your house, that is, your soul, which welcomes the Lord, and the bodily house in which you dwell corporally, rejoice and sing Psalm 30. Let's pray. Father, we do sing praise to you, and we are not silent. And we give you thanks forever, because you have been faithful. And you have done mighty deeds in raising up your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, seating Him at your right hand in glory. We thank you that your anger is but for a moment. Your favor, your grace is for a lifetime. Help us to live both weeping with those who weep, but also rejoicing with those who rejoice, for you continue to work your your mighty deeds in the midst of our afflictions and indeed through our afflictions, that by means of these things that you bring, we might be conformed to the likeness of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.